So we've been doing this spiritual worldview series since April. It's hard to believe it's been that long, but we're talking about having a spiritual faith, a spiritual Christianity, which basically just means a biblical Christianity, as opposed to a modern world where we think everything is material and science and physical, and we're highly questionable about these spiritual things and miracles and healings and tongues and Holy Spirit stuff. Trying to demystify, it is a mystery, but it, it is a mystery the scripture says we can understand that has been revealed in Christ. So we've been talking about the spirit world and your soul and your spirit and the difference in those and how to access the Holy Spirit, how to hear his voice. I'm going to get to the gifts of the spirit and holiness and miracles and healing and real spiritual prayer, what that's supposed to actually be, uh, and spiritual worship and spiritual authority and what it means when we say, in the name of Jesus, amen, at the end of our prayer, that isn't a hashtag. Uh, At the end of your prayer, it actually does mean something. It's not supposed to be a meaningless, thoughtless cliche at the end of your prayer. And what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. We're going to talk about prophecy and how to interpret prophecy and dreams and how to interpret dreams. Uh, We're going to talk about fasting and what that actually is. It isn't dieting. It actually is spiritual. Freedom from generational sins. There's a lot coming. But uh, what we've been doing in the last couple of months we've been talking about the spirit world and I described to you heaven and the throne of God and what the Bible tells us about what that looks like and what God and Jesus have been doing for 2,000 years and the angels and we talked about Lucifer and the fallen angels and and our spiritual battle and what that actually is it isn't going around being a spiritual warrior it's dying to yourself and uh, talked about demons last Sunday and witchcraft the Sunday before and what those are and what they aren't and what the bio, God tells us our response is to be to those. I told you last week that Paul says real spiritual warfare is tearing down strongholds, which is the ideas that you have on your mind that keep you prisoner. My job is to assault your ideas that are contrary to this book. Amen? One of the most solid, most stout, most firm strongholds on your mind is your modern view of the ancient world. All of a sudden the amens quit. It is a rock solid stronghold on modern thinking that there was millions of years, that there was evolution, that there was cavemen, that there was a stone age, and that's all completely contrary to the Bible. We think ancient civilizations were simpletons because they believed myths. We are more sophisticated now because we reject those myths. We understand more than our ancient fathers and mothers did. That is so arrogant. We understand what they didn't. The way the world is now is the way it's always been. One of the biggest lies that you believe without even thinking conscious thought about it is the lie of progress. That humanity has been progressing from whatever beginning until... Look at the destruction that is being waged by people who call themselves progressives. The absolute devastation of the entire world by people who believe in progress. Because they don't believe in God and they believe in evolution. And that we started out as something bad and we're moving towards something good in our own human power. And the Bible says God started us out perfect and we have been regressing and getting worse forever. The Bible says inventing new ways to sin. Increasing in darkness. Jeremiah 6, 16 and 17 
says the Lord, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. God says the good way is the ancient way. Ask where the ancient paths are, where the good way is and walk in them and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. So I appointed watchmen over you who said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. John 5, 46 and 47, Jesus says, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus says it's actually impossible to believe correctly about him if you believe incorrectly about Moses' writings. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's some really wild stuff in there. (laughs) Really strange. Jesus says if you don't believe that, you're going to think wrong about me. He says you can't understand me because that's about me. John 5, 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. The whole thing is about him. He says so. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? There are those of you who discount the creation story. There are those of you who throw away the flood story. It's not a global thing. You you rewrite what the Bible says because you don't believe it. Jesus says it's affecting what you believe about me. So we're going to go to Genesis, and I have picked probably the most controversial, wild, hard-to-believe, crazy story in the Bible, and I'm just going to dive right in the deep end head first. Genesis 6, here we go. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, the word means giants, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the Son of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of his thoughts on of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took wives as they chose. And the Nephilim, or the giants, were on the earth in those days, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Those children were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, if you know this story, you know it. If you don't, I'm sorry. Here we go. (laughs) There are three groups of characters in this story. There's the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim, or the giants. There's three groups here in this story. So, this is the first introduction to the Nephilim that we've got, um, these half spirit half human creatures that are giants and kind of have some supernatural strength and size about them the bible doesn't really ever tell us very much more except that they were giants they're big and they're strong it mentions them about eight or more nine more times i'm only going to show you three more because most of them are just 
mentioning them in passing. But let's go to Numbers 13. Numbers 13 is where the spies are going into the promised land the first time, where 10 were bad and 2 were good. The 12 spies go in. Joshua and Caleb come back and they say, yeah, we can do this. God's on our side. He's going to fight for us. We can take the promised land. And the other 10 are like, there's giants in there. We can't go fight. We can't take the promised land. And God gets angry. All right, so this is it. Numbers 13. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land when they had spied it out, saying, the land which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So the ten spies give their faithless report because of the Nephilim's descendants, the giants that live in the land called the Anakim. All right, next, so the people have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Under the leadership of Moses, God says, if you're not going to believe me, you're all going to die in the wilderness, and I'll bring your kids in. Because they will believe me. And during that 40 years, Moses leads them around, and they fight a few wars. There's a few battles, and one of the kings they have to fight is Og. Deuteronomy 3, Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his iron bed measured nine cubits in length and four cubits in width. A cubit is 18 inches. His bed was 13 and a half feet long. He's a big dude. By comparison, Goliath's only nine feet tall. He's a big dude. Now, his, the fact that his bed is 13 and a half doesn't mean he's... Th- 13 and a half feet tall, but even if he's 12, that's a pretty big guy. Yeah, he's a real big dude. In the theology of Deuteronomy, he represents Satan, and Moses represents God, and there's a war between them, and it's the giants versus the little... It's another David and Goliath-type story. In fact, the city where Og is king was called the Gates of Hell. It, too much to go into. I, I can't go down that rabbit trail, but it's really cool. Further on in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God is speaking now and he's telling them you're going to go in the promised land and fight those giants and I'm going to be with you. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim that Numbers told us were the descendants of the Nephilim. It's the same thing. Whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you so you can drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. So we've got this race of giants that descends from the original Nephilim that are half uh, sons of God, whatever that is, and half daughters of humans. So let's look at that sons of God phrase. Genesis 6 says the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they lusted after them. All right, so who are the sons of God? If you were here five weeks ago, you already know because we looked at that phrase repeatedly. Uh, It is the fallen angels. But here we go again. Job 1 and 2 both talk of a group of a spiritual event, a group that appears before God in heaven. Job 1, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And then Job 2 says the same thing. The sons of God presented themselves before God in heaven. It's a spiritual place. It's a spiritual event. Okay, in Job 38, in the book of Job, Job has spent 30-some chapters complaining to God about his suffering and demanding that God give him an explanation why did all this go wrong in my life anybody been there and done that 
Uh I think that's a lot of our prayers. We, We pray what Job prayed. And he keeps saying, God, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And his friends keep telling him, you did. Obviously, you did. You're a loser, Job. You sinned somehow. You've made God mad. And then at the end of the book, God shows up, and God doesn't answer anybody's questions. He starts asking the questions. Job, where were you when I made the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars? Who are you to question me? Job's not in trouble, and God is not angry, but he does not answer Job's question. He just questions Job. Job, you're just going to have to trust me. I know more than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm wiser than you. I'm bigger than you. You're just going to have to live by faith. (gasps) Whoa, same thing here. Has God ever answered any of your questions? Nope. God didn't answer Jesus' question either. Jesus on the cross, and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he got darkness and silence. You all been in darkness and silence? Yeah, we all have. God doesn't answer that. He says you have to live by faith. In the end, after it's all over, you will understand. And you will see that I was righteous in everything I did and everything that I allowed and everything that I didn't fix. You'll understand why and that it was good and that it was loving and that it was right. But from the very beginning, Job's questions, God doesn't answer it at all. Job, where were you? When I made the earth, by comparison, meaning, Job, I know a lot more than you. Trust me. But in God's rebuke of Job, he says, verses 4 to 7, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Who stretched the line upon it? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God is talking about the creation of the earth and the stars are singing and the sons of God are cheering him on. Those are angels. You've been around here long enough to know that stars are angels in biblical symbolism. Uh, the, The angels are cheering God on as he creates the earth, as he hangs the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth. So the sons of God are a spiritual group that are with God in heaven. They are the angels. Psalm 82, I read to you five weeks ago, but just a short passage of it. Here again, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Went into this in great detail five weeks ago. If you want to go online and listen, you can to the fallen angels sermon. But... God is speaking in the midst of the divine council. There's an assembly of, Daniel says, I saw thrones and a throne in the midst of it. And in this psalm, here's here's God sitting in the midst of the gods, little g. It's, It's the fallen angels, the principalities of this world, who convinced humanity that they were the gods in the ancient world. I already gone into that in great detail. God says to these beings, You are gods, the sons of the Most High. But because you have sinned, like men, you will die. So these are not humans. The sons of God are not humans. There is a consensus among scholars regarding Genesis 6, unbelieving scholars that read the Bible, or even people who claim to be Christians but don't have a spiritual mindset. They read Genesis 6, the sons of God came into the daughters of humans. And they say, okay, the sons of God has to be the line of Seth 
and the daughters of man has to be the line of Cain. And that's why they were cursed. Well, if it was that, that's what it would say. And it very clearly, Genesis 6, distinguishes the humans from whoever the sons of God are. And then the rest of the scripture, the sons of God, are angels in general, or usually just the fallen angels. In Jude 6 and 7, Jude only has one chapter, Jude verses 6 and 7, he mentions the angels that sinned. Forget everything about that I just told you from Genesis and Job. We can, we can erase all of that and just take Jude 6 and 7 by itself. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in chain, eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, and other translations say different flesh or strange flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude says, when the angels sinned, even if we don't know anything about Genesis, and that the sons of God are angels in the Old Testament, if we just know Revelation, that there was a war between Michael and his angels and the devil and his angels, and that the dragon swept a third of the stars out of the sky, which is a third of the angels went with Satan in that war. Jude says, when the angels sinned, they were punished and they're chained up in darkness now. Just as, see that word? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise sinned sexually. Jude says the sin of the fallen angels was sexual, just like the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah, likewise, just like the angels, indulged in unnatural sexual activity. Do you see it? Forget Genesis, forget Job, everything I've just told you. Jude says the fallen angels, their original sin was sexual, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Or Sodom and Gomorrah's sin is just like the angels' sin, they engaged in unnatural sexual activity. Second Peter 2 says the same thing about the angels. God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Peter doesn't say anything about the type of sin, that it was sexual or anything, but he too, like Jude says, they are chained up in darkness. Where did they get that idea? Because it's not anywhere else in the Bible. Jude and Peter seem to know that the angels who rebelled and were cast out of heaven and sinned with women, that they are chained up in darkness. Both of them say this. But that's not anywhere else in the Bible. The Old Testament doesn't say that. It do, and Revelation doesn't say that they're chained up in darkness. The place where they got that idea is from a book that's not in the Bible. It's called the book of Enoch. All right, The book of Enoch is not in the Bible. It's not inspired scripture, but... It says that the fallen angels are chained up in darkness. And Jude and Peter are relating to that or referring to it. Jude actually quotes from the book of Enoch, and I'll show you that in just a minute. There are actually lots of other books mentioned or named in the Bible that are not in the Bible. There's actually over 132 books that are referred to or quoted from, but they're not in the Bible. Example, the book of Jasher is mentioned in Joshua 10 and 2 Samuel 1. Let me read to you from Joshua 10 to show you how the, what this looks like. Joshua 10 is the story of when Joshua stopped the sun. 
so that the battle could continue all night long. Okay, Joshua 10, 12. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still. Moon, stand still in the valley of Elijah. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. And there has been no day like it before or since that the Lord listened to the voice of a man. So here's the author of Joshua, which some scholars think was Joshua himself and others think it was Samuel. In three or four verses, he describes Joshua making the sun stand still. And then he says also, and and it's written in the book of Jasher. We don't have the book of Jasher. It's gone. No scrolls survived. But the author of Joshua in inspired scripture says, if you want to know more details, go read Jasher. You see that? And scripture says, let everything be established by two or three witnesses. God does not need a second witness. Jesus said so. God's word is enough. But the author of Joshua, whether it's Joshua or Samuel, we don't know, is saying, I'm not the only one that saw this. It's written in in Jasher too. Go and read it. So two things are happening. When the Bible mentions another book, it's saying, there's more details in that other book. Go and read them. And it's saying, there's another witness to this. Go and read it. Okay? But we don't have any of them. They're all gone. The book of the wars of the Lord is mentioned in Numbers 21. It's gone. We don't have it. The book of Samuel the seer. The book of Nathan the prophet. The book of Gad the seer. Nathan and Gad are mentioned numerous times in the story of the life of David and Solomon, but we have no none of their writings. They're gone. We don't know where they're at. The scrolls didn't survive. The acts of Rehoboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. And his story is in the Bible, but only in about two chapters. And then it says, all the details of his reign are written in the book of the Acts of Rehoboam. If you want to know more about Rehoboam, go read it. Except that we have now lost it. It's gone. It's 3,000 years old and it's gone. But the Bible tells us to go read it. The Chronicles of the Kings of Israel and Judah. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings 4.32 that Solomon wrote a thousand psalms, and we only have two of them. Psalm 72 and Psalm 127 are attributed to Solomon, but 998 of them were written down and now gone. They're lost. But they were written down, and the Bible tells us about that songbook. Hello? Okay. The Annals of the Prophet Iddo. <laughs> what an unfortunate name. <laughs> I'm sure he got teased in school. In 2 Chronicles 9, 12, and 13, there's a story, and the author of 2 Chronicles says, is it not written in the Chronicles of the prophet Iddo? Who's Iddo? We don't know. He's, he's not in the rest of the Bible, but his book is mentioned three times. But it's gone. We don't know what, what happened to Iddo and his book. Uh, but, he's, but he's mentioned in the Bible. The manner of the kingdom, the acts of Solomon, the annals of King David, the sayings of the seers is a book that's mentioned in 2 Chronicles 33.19. 2 Chronicles 33 is the story of Manasseh. Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a righteous, godly king who brought revival to Israel, but his son was from hell. Manasseh was, other than maybe Ahab in Israel, Manasseh was one of the wickedest kings of Judah. The Bible says he consulted sorcerers and mediums and soothsayers. He sacrificed his children in the fire. He burned them alive. 
to the idol gods. I mean, he was a wicked dude. And at the very end of his life, the prophet comes and he says, Manasseh, God says you're going to die for your sins. And Manasseh repents and God doesn't kill him. Other than Ahab's repentance, the repentance and forgiveness of Manasseh is the most mind-blowing, generous forgiveness of God in the Old Testament. God instantly forgives Ahab. He instantly forgives Manasseh. At the end of the passage, it's a half a chapter in 2 Chronicles 33, about the life of Manasseh. He gets like 12 or 15 verses. And then it says, if you want to know more about his sin and his prayer and his forgiveness, go read the sayings of the seers. And that's gone. We don't have it. But the Bible tells us, It's okay to read that. It's got some facts you need to know. You with me? Okay. We know that there are two other letters to the Corinthians that Paul wrote. He mentions them, but we don't have them. They're gone. Paul in Colossians 4 mentions that he wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea, and he says to the Corinthians, make sure you get a copy of that and read it. And then now it's gone. It's not in the Bible. It's not even saved in history. It's gone. But the Holy Bible tells us to read the letter to the Laodiceans, even though it isn't Holy Bible. It's all right. I'm not here to tell you there's some long lost book of the Bible that you need to believe. But I'm just saying the Bible references other books a lot. By far, the most influential book in the Bible that is not in the Bible is the book of Enoch. And guess what? It's the only one we still have. There are existent scroll copies. It's a picture of one right there. They were among the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we already knew it existed even before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It's been referenced a lot. It's quoted from in the book of Jude. Um, this is the book of Enoch. So who's Enoch? Well, he's Adam's great, 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 great grandson, four greats, and he's Noah's great-grandfather. And he has the shortest biography in the Bible. Here we go. Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He's got a, all, the, all the guys tells how old they are and who their sons were. Enoch has an additional sentence, and it's a wonderful sentence. He walked with God. What a wonderful synopsis of his life. Hopefully that's God's description of your life. But it says he didn't die. God just took him. He just, he just ceased to be on the earth. Nobody found him. He didn't die. He wasn't buried. Hebrews 11.5 gives us one little tidbit more. These are the only two references to Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. But before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. What a great testimony. God was happy with his life. Wow. That's awesome. The only other thing we know about Enoch, we don't know anything he did, anything he accomplished. That's the only scriptures, except that Jude says he wrote a book. Jude verses 14 and 15 says Enoch wrote a book and he quotes from it. So Jude had a copy of it. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
That is a direct quote of 1 Enoch 1.9. From a modern translation done a year ago, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the corrupt things that were done in their depravity and all the harsh words that godless sinners have spoken against him. Uh, the R.H. Charles translation done a uh, hundred years ago, which is considered in the book of Enoch studies, um, he's the most authoritative English translation. Behold, he cometh with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see that it's a direct quote in scripture. Jude says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, wrote this, and then he quotes it. So at least those two verses in Jude, quoting Enoch 1.9, at least that is Holy Scripture. Some of you are really uncomfortable, like Mitch, don't read from a book that's not in the Bible. I could quote Augustine and Martin Luther and C.S. Lewis and Bill Johnson to you all day, and you would not get nervous. I quote Enoch to you, and you get nervous. I'm not here to tell you it's scripture. I'm not here to tell you it should be in the Bible, but it isn't. Not any of that. Like any other godly author, we read what he wrote and we consider it. Is this true or is it not? Hello? Are we safe? Are you comfortable? Okay. All right. Some of you are really cool with it. Others are like, "Mm, I don't know. All right. Okay. It's all right. I told you when we started, I know this is a really weird topic and a really weird story, but Jude is not the only one that refers to, he's the only one who directly quotes Enoch, but he's not the only one that refers to what Enoch wrote. Let's go to Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. And Hebrews 12.24 says, Jesus' sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we get this very strange idea in Hebrews twice that Abel or and or his blood is still speaking. Even though he's dead and his blood is speaking out of the ground. That's not in the Genesis. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Where did the author of Hebrews get that idea that Abel is still speaking? It's in First Enoch. In First Enoch chapter 22, Enoch is in Sheol, he's in the grave, and he says, I saw the spirit of a dead man who was crying out for justice, and his voice appealed to heaven from, for justice. And I asked Raphael, who's one of the good angels in the story, the angel who was with me, who is this spirit which presents his case? Whose voice appeals to heaven for justice? And he explained to me, this is the spirit of Abel who was murdered by his brother Cain, and he will continue to present his case against him until all of his children are removed from the face of the earth and until his seed is annihilated from the bloodlines of men. So Enoch is before the flood, so the line of Cain is still alive. And Abel was crying out for his justice and for God to take vengeance. And Hebrews 12 says the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel because Abel was crying out for justice and vengeance and Jesus is crying out for forgiveness. For those of you who would say, well, okay, so this is proof right here that Enoch is not Scripture because here it presents Abel, who's a righteous man of faith, as, as praying for justice and vengeance, except that in Revelation, everyone who's died for Christ is under the altar praying for justice and vengeance. It does not contradict the Scripture. Not in this regard. 
Moses, in the ceremony of the scapegoat, has a fascinating reference. Guess where it came from? In Leviticus chapter 16, we've got the story or the ceremony of the scapegoat. Every year they were to draw two goats. One was to have, they were both to have their sins pronounced on it. One of them was offered as a, as a sacrificial offering on the altar. The other, they'd lay their hands on it and pronounce all the sins of Israel on its head. And then they would chase it out in the desert. And it was the scapegoat. It's where we get the English word scapegoat. Somebody who takes the blame for somebody else. The goat was to take, carry the sin away to be the blame. You with me? Okay, here's the ceremony. Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. And it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Well, where or who or what is Azazel? He's not anywhere else in the Bible. He's in Enoch. He's one of the fallen angels. Enoch 9.6, the angels of heaven said to the Lord of the ages, you see what Azazel has done. He has taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets that were secured in heaven, which men were striving to learn. Enoch chapter 10, verses 4 to 6, and the Lord says to Raphael, bind Azazel hand and foot and cast him into darkness and make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and cast him there and place upon him rough and jagged rocks and cover him with darkness. Jude and Second Peter, they are covered in darkness. Hello? Cover him with darkness and let him stay there forever and cover his face so he will see no light and he will be thrown into the fire on the day of the great judgment. So Enoch chapter 10 says that Azazel is one of the fallen angels and he's buried in a pit out in the desert. Moses says, pronounce all your sins on this goat and drive him out into the wilderness to Azazel. Azazel isn't anywhere else in the Bible. He's in Enoch. Moses is referring to Enoch. And Jesus referred to the book of Enoch. Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees, who are a group like the Pharisees, they're a political slash religious group that are there in the Bible and they're opponents of Jesus. And they they don't believe in the resurrection, the afterlife, an eternal spirit world of any sort. That's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in eternal life. The Sadducees come to Jesus, and they think they've got Jesus tricked. They've got him trapped, because they don't believe there's any eternal afterlife of any sort. So they take the command in the Old Testament, in the Torah, the Moses Law, that if a man dies without any children, then his next youngest brother has to marry that woman and give his older brother children in his older brother's name. So they come up with this absurd scenario where seven brothers marry the same girl and none of them have any children, so the next youngest just keeps having to marry her. And she dies without any children. They all die without any children. And they say, all right, Jesus, if there is a heaven, if there's an afterlife, we got you trapped. Whose wife is she going to be? Ha ha, gotcha. Jesus says, you goofballs. Verse, verse 29, Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. Jesus says, Sadducees, you err because you don't know the scriptures. There is nothing anywhere in the Bible about angels marrying or not marrying. There's nothing there. But it is in First Enoch. Jesus refers to Enoch as Scripture. 
not Holy Bible. The word just means writings. Hello? Jesus says, you don't know the writings. Here it is. First Enoch 15. God is speaking to the fallen angels. Why have you left the high, holy, and eternal heaven and slept with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken wives for yourselves and behaved like the children of the earth and sired giants as your sons? Even though they were, you were holy, spiritual, and living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women and have fathered children with flesh and blood. And like the children of men, have lusted after flesh and blood, just like men who die and perish. I have given wives only to men, that they might have children with them, so that they will lack nothing on earth. However, you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life, immortal and all gener- for all generations of the world." I have not appointed any wives for you because the spiritual beings of heaven must remain in the heavenly realms. That's the only thing even remotely close that Jesus could mean when he tells the Sadducees, you don't know the writings. There's nothing in the Old Testament about angels not being married. But there it is. So Jesus, this passage... It's useful to Jesus to refute the Sadducees, but it also tells us a lot about what happened in Genesis 6. Uh, one source that I read this week says there is little doubt the first Enoch was very influential in molding the New Testament doctrines about the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Messianic Kingdom, demonology, the resurrection, and eschatology, which is the return of Christ. The book was considered a scripture by Barnabas and other church fathers such as Athenagoras, Clement, Arrhenius, and Tertullian. I'm now in the process of reading it for the fourth time. I find it very much like Ezekiel and Daniel, Isaiah, Revelation. It's not Bible, so it cannot be considered gospel. But it doesn't contradict the Bible. It just adds detail that I have to think and pray about. And, okay, is this true or not? I never ask, is this true or not, when I read this book. Hello? When I read this book, I pray, and is this true or not? And it's... It's really, really good. It is all about Jesus, actually, which is why the Jews never included it in their, in their holy scriptures because it's not about the covenant. It's not about Shabbat and circumcision, and it doesn't include the, the name of God because Enoch didn't know that. That wasn't given until the burning bush. Um, there's a reason why it's not in the Bible. It's because the Jews never accepted it because it's all about the Son of Man. There is a human man on the throne beside God in this book. The opening chapter of Enoch says, this is not for my generation, it is for the great last generation that will go through the great tribulation. It's an amazing book. Highly recommend it. It's not scripture, it's not Bible, I'm not here to tell you it's inspired, at least two verses of it are, because they're quoted in Holy Bible, but that's all we can say. But I'm going to read to you from Enoch. Because it helps us, gives us some ideas on what Genesis 6 might be meaning. From 1 Enoch chapter 6. After the children of men were multiplied, beautiful and gracious daughters were born to them. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw them and lusted after them and said to each other, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and conceive children for ourselves. And they descended in the days of Jared to the summit of Mount Hermon, and they called it Mount Hermon. And they all took wives, each one chose one for himself, and they became intimate with them, and they defiled themselves, and they taught them about magic and witchcraft, and the cutting of roots, and getting them acquainted with plants. That's not gardening, that's alchemy, witchcraft, you know, herbal witchcraft. That isn't how to plant carrots, okay? 
They became pregnant and they bore great giants. They consumed everything that men had acquired, and when humanity could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and began to devour mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to eat each other's flesh and drink each other's blood. And the, men, and the earth cried out in accusation against the lawless ones. Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates, and he taught them about the metals of the earth and metalsmithing, how to make bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids, all kinds of precious stones and makeup. And as their godlessness increased, their sexual sin and deception increased, and they became completely corrupted in every way. Simjaza taught them cast spell casting and cut it, root cuttings. These are the names of the fallen angels, some of them. Armoros, the undoing of spells. Barakajal taught astrology. Kokabel, the constellations. Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds. Arachiel, the signs of the earth. Shamsiel, the signs of the sun. And Sariel, the course of the moon. And as more men died, they cried out, and their cry rose up to heaven. Then Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel looked down from heaven, and they saw all the blood that was being shed on the earth and all the wickedness that was happening. And they said to each other, The earth itself is now crying out and reverberating with the sound of man's intense suffering to the point that it has reached the very gates of heaven. Now the souls of men appealed and said, Bring our cause before the Most High. And they said to the Lord of the ages, Lord of lords, God of gods, King of kings, God of all ages, the throne of your glory stands for all generations and all ages, and your name is holy and glorious and blessed for all ages. You have made all things, and you have power over everything, and all things are exposed and open in your sight, and you see everything, and nothing can hide itself from you. You've seen what Azazel has done, you, how he taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets that were secured in heaven, which men were striving to learn. And Simjaza, to whom you have given authority to rule over his associates, they have gone to the daughters of men on the earth and have been intimate with women and have defiled themselves and taught them all kinds of sin. And the women have given birth to giants, and the whole earth is filled with blood and unrighteousness because of it. And now look, the souls of those who have died are crying out and making their suit to the gates of heaven, and their cries have ascended and will not stop resounding because of the lawless deeds that are happening on the earth. You know everything before it happens. You see these things, and you have allowed them. Why have you not yet directed us to do anything about them? And the Most High, the Great One, the Holy One, spoke and said, Go to Noah and tell him, Hide yourself in my name. Show him the end that is approaching, and the whole earth will be destroyed in a flood that is about to come upon the whole earth, and it will destroy everything that is on it. To teach him that he may escape, so that his bloodline will be preserved for all generations of the world. And then the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and cast him into the darkness, and make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and cast him there. And the place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him stay there forever, and cover his face so he will see no light, and he will be thrown into the fire on the great day of judgment. And heal the earth which these angels have corrupted, and declare that it was restored, and that its curse will be removed, so that not all mankind will die because of all the occult things that the watchers have shared and taught to their sons. The watchers is, is Enoch's name for the fallen angels. It's also in Daniel three times. So it's a Bible word. The whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel, so ascribe all sin to him. And the Lord said, Go forth against the, those of mixed blood, that means angel and human, whose bloodline is corrupted. March against the children of fornication. Eradicate the children of fornication, the children of the watchers from humanity. Cause them to march out against each other so they will destroy each other in battle and not have long to live. Go and bind Simjaza and his associates who have been intimate with women who have defiled themselves with their filthiness. And when their sons have killed each other, 
They will see the destruction and bind them securely from the valleys of the earth until the day of judgment. They will waste away in the judgment that is forever and ever. Enoch begins to see God on his throne in a, in a future chapter here, and I'm going to start in chapter 15. I looked up and I saw a lofty throne in appearance like crystal, and the wheels were like the shining sun, and there was a vision of cherubim. Does that agree with Scripture? Yeah, absolutely it does. From underneath the throne came streams of flaming fire, so powerful that I couldn't even look at them. And the great glory sat on it, and his garment shone more brightly than the sun and was whiter than any snow. None of the angels could even enter, and they could not gaze upon his face because of his magnificence and glory, and no flesh could behold him. There was a flaming fire all around him, and a great fire stood before him. None around could draw near to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, but he needed no counselor. That is also a verse that's referenced in the Bible. And the most holy ones who were near him did not leave by night or withdraw from his presence. Until then I was been laying prostrate on my face and trembling. But then the Lord called me and he spoke to me with his own voice. Come here, Enoch, and hear my word. And one of the holy ones came to me and stood me up. And I approached the door and I bowed my face to the ground. And I heard his voice answer and told me, Fear not, Enoch, you are a righteous man and a scribe of righteousness. Come near and hear my voice. Go and say to these watchers who have sent you, why have you left the high and holy and eternal heaven and slept with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken wives for yourselves, behaved like the children of the earth and sired giants as your sons? Even though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you defiled yourselves with the blood of women and you fathered children with flesh and blood as the children of men. You lusted after flesh and blood and like men you will die and perish. I have given wives only to men that they might impregnate them and have children with them so that they will lack nothing on earth. However, you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life. I had not appointed wives for you because the spiritual beings of heaven must remain in the heavenly realms. And now these giants, listen close, and now these giants who have been produced from spirit and flesh will become evil spirits upon the earth and the earth will be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies even though they were born of men their seed and beginning is from the holy watchers. So now they will be evil spirits on the earth, and they will be called evil spirits. The spirits of heaven will continue to dwell in heaven. The spirits on the earth who were born on the earth will continue to be living only on the earth. And the spirits of the giants will afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction and cause trouble. They will take no food, but they will hunger and thirst and cause offense. And they will rise up against the children of men and against women because they proceeded from them. I told you last Sunday the New Testament never explains what a demon is. And I told you it was because everybody in the New Testament knew what a demon was. It's the spirit of a Nephilim. When they died, their eternal part continued on. So in Enoch which again is not scripture and I'm not trying to get you to believe that it is. It just adds detail to what Genesis 6 tells us. We have the fallen angels showing up from heaven, cohabitating, procreating with women, and we have a race of giants that are half human and half spirit, and the fallen angels teach them all sorts of evil and sin, and they ruin the earth, and that is the reason for the flood, which is what Genesis 6 says, and that when those giants died... Their spirits became evil spirits that roamed the earth until the final judgment. 
It's awful quiet. I realize that a lot of you have the, your arms crossed and you're like, I don't know, Mitch. You have totally dropped off the edge of sanity. I get it. I get it. I really do. The modern mind is so rejects this kind of mythological stuff. Uh, spirits and humans mating and procreating. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. I get it. That's a real stretch to our modern science thinking. But you believe that Jesus is the product of God and a woman. If you're an Orthodox Christian, you believe in a spirit man. It is actually more of a logical stretch to believe that creator and created could cohabitate as opposed to two created beings with similar anatomy because angels are always appearing as humans. Hello? It's actually more supernatural, more miraculous that God fathered a child than that angels could father a child. Now I'm really in it deep. (laughs) Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He's not the created Son of God. God fathered Him with Mary's egg. He is the seed of Eve. He is the Son of Mary. He's the Son of David and of Abraham and of Adam, the Son of God. And all through Scripture, angels are appearing on earth with physically touchable bodies. The the angels that go to get Lot and his wife out of Sodom are real enough that they pull Lot inside the door of his house and then they pull Lot and his wife and daughters out of the city. They aren't ghosts. They're physical. There's an angel that wrestles with Jacob all night long. He wasn't wrestling a phantasm. It was a physical body. There's uh, angels that meet and sit with Abraham and eat with him. In Acts 12... Peter is in prison, and he looks up, and an angel open, miraculously opens the jail door, and he thinks he's seeing a vision until the angel punches him in the side and says, Get up, we're going. <laughs> There's physical touch from the angel in a physical body. I realize that angels fathering children is quite a bit different physical touch. I get that. I get that. But the Bible says it happened. Genesis 6. If you can receive it, Enoch gives us some more details. You don't have to receive it. I just wanted to to read it to you. But the Bible says that the sons of God lusted after the daughters of men. So their sin was motivated by lust. But I, this is my opinion, my opinion, that they are not just lusting after the women. They are trying to stop God's your seed prophecy that he had spoken to Eve. They're going to ruin, genetically ruin what God created and loved and to stop Eve's seed from being able to crush their head. We're going to breed humanity out of existence. We're going to make it impure. So they're, the Nephilim, these giant men with super strength, their fathers are angels. Their mothers are women, human women. They are half angel, half men, human. But I told you five weeks ago that the angels, when they came to earth, and I showed this to you, and even God calls them gods, little g. Right? They presented themselves as gods. The Bible says the fallen angels are the gods of antiquity, the idols 
that they were worshiping. So these angels that are not gods are presenting themselves to humanity as gods and saying, look at all this power we're going to give you. We're going to teach you all this magic stuff. And they enslaved humanity in evil and witchcraft. But it was magical power. Hello? The, oh, these guys are powerful. They're, they're gods. And the humanity began to worship them. So the Nephilim, from a human perspective, not from God's perspective, because the angels aren't gods, but from a human perspective, the Nephilim are God-men. They are spirit men. You believe in a God-man too. The real, the only, the one and only, the only begotten God-man. Let me show you something about him from Matthew chapter 17, also in Mark 9 and Luke 9. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and took them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, shining, glistening, exceedingly white as snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them in glory, speaking with him of his death, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. There's a painting here that I'm going to show you from the Renaissance, 1500, 1600s, a painting of Jesus, the Transfiguration. No painting or artwork could ever convey what those words describe. Jesus became so bright they couldn't look at him, whiter than anything on earth. And the description of the glory and light and fire around Jesus is just like the Old Testament descriptions of God on his throne. This is, the transfiguration is God displaying Jesus, the human man, to be God. And it's the same appearance as later on in Revelation 1, John sees him with eyes burning of fire, white robe that's so white, bright, John falls on his face and thinks he's going to die. His skin is glowing like molten metal in Revelation 1. This is a preview of that, that God gives to Peter, James, and John. They see Jesus lifted up in the glory of God, and he is shown to be God. The man who is God. The word who became flesh. The God who was incarnate. Then they look around. They stand up. They'd fallen on their face. They stand up, and nobody's around. Later on in the story, Jesus tells them on the way down the mountain, don't tell anybody until actually I've raised from the dead. And they, they said they asked each other, what does it mean raised from the dead? They're just clueless until it, after it happened. But I want to show you, Matthew 16 tells us this happened in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is a picture of the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it is far north of Israel. Matthew 16 says he, he spent those six days preaching in the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So for six days, he's preaching around, and then after six days, it says he went up on a high mountain. So there's the mountains around Caesarea Philippi. In fact, that is the 
tall mountain right there. Can I have the next picture? Kind of back up a little bit and you can get a view of the region that is Caesarea Philippi. All the mountains around Caesarea Philippi, there's these hills that are two to 3,000 feet in elevation, but there's this one mountain that is 9,000 feet tall. It's the only one even remotely close to that hall. It is the mountain that rises above all the landscape around Caesarea Philippi. It says Jesus took them up on a high mountain all alone. All the other mountains have, all the other hills around have villages and farms and orchards and vineyards and settlements. This mountain is so tall and so desolate, there's not even a tree uh, alive on this mountain. This is the, the tall mountain around Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus took Peter and Paul, it, most assuredly. It's, it's where the transfiguration happened. Guess what mountain this is? It's Mount Hermon. Where Enoch says the watchers came down and cohabitated with women and created God-men. And Yahweh God says, brings his son to the top and says, This is my son. This is my offspring. This is the God-man. You listen to him. Oh, Jesus! Is that not awesome? The high mountain around Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon, where the watchers came and created the Nephilim, where they wanted to have sons, they wanted to create spiritual men. And Yahweh God says, this is the spirit man. This is my son. This is the God man. This is the God who became a man. This is the man who is God. And in the place where they did their most hideous sin, he shoved it in their face and said, you listen to him. This is the name above every principality and power. This is the name above every name. This is Jesus who is far above every principality and power. Yay, God! Woohoo! Jesus wins. Jesus wins. It's so awesome when you know the biblical geography of what's going on in these locations and the history of it all and the Old Testament. It's so much fun. God is so good. Yay, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. The name above every name. The one who defeated death by death. The one who tells demons, shut up and get away. The one who sits on the throne next to the Most High. The Son of Man on high. The God who became flesh. The man who was God. Amen. 